Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome to the show, everybody. Today is the 16th of February. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today and joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet. Uh, today are Doug and Erica. Um, Gabby and uh, Tiffany are not going to be with us today, unfortunately. We miss them, but they have other engagements. And uh, Zoya will be with us later for the pet health segment as well. We have a, a pre-recorded segment from her so that our connection does not drop out. Um, so today... Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, ketosis. It should be an interesting topic, ketosis and the ketogenic diet. Um, Doug's got quite a bit of data on that. But first, we're going to go to uh, Erica and just do a little bit of review of um, some of the news that's been happening lately regarding health and wellness and uh, a little update on some of the vaccine hysteria that appears to be ongoing. Erica, you want to update us on that? Yes. Um, Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start off um, kind of picking up where we've covered in the last few shows about this vaccine hysteria and in particular this outbreak of the measles in California and Arizona. And um, if you follow the SOT.net health and wellness section, you can get all the latest updates on this vaccine debate. But one of the articles that kind of piqued my attention and I wanted to bring up is that um, there's a new federal bill that's been announced to eliminate all vaccine exemptions for Head Start. And for people who do not live in the United States who might not know what Head Start is, Head Start is a federally funded program for low-income children in the United States developed back in the 1960s to provide educational support for uh, children going into kindergarten. Um, It's funded a lot by the uh, USDA because they provide breakfast and lunch for low-income children. And why this federal bill is kind of alarming is um, for uh, 2015, the statistics on children who are on food stamps are considered low-income was um, about 16 million. So it's a pretty large population that this program serves. So this uh, vaccine exemption being eliminated will affect a lot of children negatively in this way. So I just wanna give you a little info from the the article. So Senator Barbara Boxer uh, and Representative Anna Eshoo from Palo Alto proposed this legislation And um, it's federal legislation and not state legislation. So each state has different uh, um, vaccine exemption laws, but this would be a federal law that would require all children who attend Head Start to have all CDC-mandated vaccines. And um, the proposal is titled a Head Start on Vaccinations Act. And... um, As I said, it would recommend all vaccines, and there would be no exemptions for religious or personal beliefs. Mm. Um, The Monterey Herald kind of did a little report on this bill, and the um, Palo Alto representative kind of made a joke saying that um, this bill is a booster shot 
for our nation's vaccine policies and will mitigate the spread of deadly disease. And trying to be huh. funny in a really sick and distorted sort of way, you know, and, and kind of touching on that, um, the measles vaccine or the MMR, it, it's been a controversy since the CDC whistleblower, uh, Dr. Thompson, came out and, and showed that they've been lying and omitting information. But also that, generally speaking, people don't die from the measles. And so this whole kind of wording of, of you know, this deadly disease and kids are going to mm. die and then going after people who don't vaccinate by saying things like, you know, they should be jailed or they're, um, the children should be taken away. You know, all this kind of fear tactics is basically a form of medical tyranny, right? And, yeah. mm -hmm. and really taking away people's right to choose and parents to have a choice in, in you know, what they want to do for their child. And so, again, there's, there's, you know, many articles about this. Uh, one of them, which is kind of interesting, is uh, McDonald's gives free vaccines with Happy Meals in Texas. You can huh. read that on the thought page. Jeez. So, so now they're, you know, come get your Happy Meal and your free MMR vaccine, you know. And Not then, enough poison in the Happy Meal. They have to uh, include a vaccine with that as well. Yeah. And yeah. what's kind of interesting about this whole thing is, again, you know, they're, they're, they, as I said last week, um, the CDC came out and said the overall vaccination rate in the U.S. is 92%. So it's mm. all this energy is being focused on this 7% of people that are choosing to opt out, right, based on religious or philosophical exemptions. And... Um, as Sherry Tenpenny has said, and she's the woman we talked about last week who received bomb threats um, for proposing to do an informational tour in Australia, you know, vaccine, and this is a quoted by her in a, in a video called uh, Vaccines, the Silent Epidemic, um, vaccine mandates are a sign of vaccine failure. So you can see this massive push to continue for people to get this MMR vaccine, even though children aren't dying from measles and mumps. And um, yeah. one of the things that I'm noticing in all my research is that all these anti, <clears throat> excuse me, all these people that are against parents choosing to opt out, they're saying, oh, it's the wealthy or it's the elite or, you know, it's um, even one article on SOT entitled there's nothing trendy about not vaccinating your child it's being painted in this light that people are refusing vaccinations for illogical irrational reasons and anybody who's a regular reader of sot will know that that's just not the case that the the information out there and what we shared in our flu vaccine um, radio show it's just there's some serious concerns and and rightly so. Yeah, it's the uh, the people who are refusing vaccines tend to be the more informed on the subject. It's the you know although they're portrayed as these kind of hysterical, um, unreasonable people who are just kind of reading uh, conspiracy theories on the internet. Um, you know the the people who are actually uh, going out there and 
and, and learning things and, and uh, becoming informed are the ones who, who are usually making the decision not to vaccinate. Exactly. And um, in one of these articles in on the SOT page uh, called Corporate Crimes and Fines by Big Pharma, How They Get Away From It, the author talks about an article in Health Impact News about doctors earning $3.5 billion in kickbacks from pharmaceutical companies. And then she goes on to say, what does that tell you as to why you and parents are being forced by pseudoscience and Kool-Aid science drinkers to submit to vaccination? It's a legal racket condoned by law, the Health and Human Services, the CDC, and the FDA. So one study would prove the controversial science surrounding vaccines is a retrospective study of the health status of vaccinated children of all ages versus non-vaccinated children. And she makes a plea to Congress to please commission a, a discussion on that, like, um, you know, about the difference between unvaccinated children and vaccinated children. And basically, from this article and several others, is that this is um, this is a profit-making industry. And mm-hmm. what's happening is, you know, especially with uh, Dr. Thompson's revelations, and then you know, Dr. Wakefield, what we talked about before, who started coming out with damning evidence, you know, ten years ago about the MMR vaccine, is that um, it just becomes a profit-driven industry, and the more people decide to forego or even just wait to vaccinate till the child's immune system has developed more, you know, they're losing those those shares of that money. So it's it's like the classic psychopathic corporation. You know, the number one mm-hmm. goal is profit. It's mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. your child's health, you know, or the health of your community and, um so she she goes on to say uh, in the conclusion of this article about corporate crimes and fines by Big Pharma, why after all the years of contention about parents not wanting to vaccinate, wouldn't medical science, Big Pharma, and government health agencies want to see the record scientifically or set the record scientifically straight? Why do they just pontificate vaccines are safe? That's not been proven, and each va- vaccine insert says so. Check it out by asking your medical doctor for that piece of paper and read it thoroughly. And that's mm-hmm. like what we talked about before. Read the ingredients on what is being given in those vaccines. And it's it's just it's alarming. It's alarming in the sense that people, that the mainstream media has so much control to, you know, de- demonize and vilify people who are taking their own health and wellness into their own hands. Mm-hmm. And just yeah. to kind of tie that all up, you know, um, as I said before, I wrote an article for SOT a couple months ago about America, the vaccination, nation. And in there, I in, included this UNICEF document. So it says, UNICEF, the United Nations Children's Fund, um, defames health sites over vaccines. So a report came out monitoring independent health sites and their users in an attempt to identify anti-vaccine influencers and their effect on lackluster vaccine uptake. And it goes on to say... um, 
par- it's confirmed that parents are using social media networks to decide whether or not to vaccinate their child, and then labeling research that contradicts or questions the views on vaccines as always safe and effective, always outweigh the risks. And, um, you know, it's basically, again, trying to control the information. So the um, insofar as many of the sites UNICEF labels as anti-vaccine consistently cite peer-reviewed and public research, they risk inciting the credibility of their own global immunization program. And so their, their um, report makes the following recommendation. International agencies and other partners will need to combine forces and support governments to reverse this counterproductive trend and develop common strategies to promote immunization. So that basically that's what we're seeing unfolding as we speak. So it's a marketing strategy. Basically. And anybody that questions is, you know, not a good parent or they're, you know, wealthy and and they're they're um, not informed and they get their information from the internet and it couldn't be farther from the truth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's particularly think- insidious the uh the, the program you were talking about before where you know that they're targeting um lower income families and children. Um you know, it's uh it's people who don't really have a lot of choices. Um, so it's kind of like th- these people who are kind of forced um, to rely on these programs are suddenly also going to be forced to get their children vaccinated. Right. Exactly. And I, and I really recommend yep. for people who are kind of, um, you know, on the fence about this measles issue and, and you know, if, if my unvaccinated child is going to spread it to your vaccinated child, I recommend um, – the article, The Vaccine Safety Myth, and it was uh, Best of the Web last week on SOT uh, by Jamie Jones, an MD, and um, he just has this to say, think hard before you endorse the idea that government should be able to mandate a profitable but invasive medical procedure without informed consent. It's not about measles. It's about your freedom to choose. It's your First Amendment right. Yeah, exactly. Totally. Yeah. And it does seem to be going that way in uh, in a lot of other areas of medicine as well, just like um, we talked about in one of our earlier shows, um, uh, minors being forced uh, to take chemotherapy, even against their parents' mm. will to the point to, to the point that CPS will come and take them from their parents and take them to the doctor to strap them down and give them chemotherapy against their will. Uh, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It's just over the top. This... Yeah. Uh, a parallel uh, was drawn in my mind earlier today when I was I was reading some things about um, the kind of epidemic of police brutality and shootings that are going on now, and that people in the United States, uh, especially, are so afraid of the police to the point where now they're calling the 911 uh, dispatcher when they are pulled over because they're afraid of the police that have pulled them over. Hmm. Uh, it's just such an epidemic of fear. And uh, but they were ta- specifically uh, this article was talking about resisting arrest and the controversy around resisting arrest and the fact that you just can't do it. It's just a, it's it's a it's a complete no no, um, you know. And they can then they then have the excuse to do pretty much whatever they want. They can cite resisting arrest even if you say you know uh, uh, ask them a question. 
they can say, well, you're resisting, you know, and then you use physical force uh, because they're quote unquote, their lives are in danger, even if you have no weapons or anything like that. Um, and that seems to me like what's going on with vaccines right now. Like if you say what you think, uh, or even not just what you think, if you show the science about vaccines, about the fact that they're not safe, uh, the fact that herd immunity is a myth, uh, if you bring up any of these issues, then you are quote unquote resisting arrests, you know, and at that mm -hmm. point, then all bets are off. You can be labeled a nut, a conspiracy theorist. You can be denied social services. Uh, your kids can be denied access to school. Um, it just it's it's a it's a very similar thing like they set up this paradigm where if you go against it you are no longer part of the herd you know you're you're no longer granted any of the um the benefits so to speak of uh society and you're ostracized and cut off and I, personally i hey. think um regarding you know um treating yourself for illnesses um uh, Certainly, there are cases where you do, like, you know, there are surgical cases where you do need an expert who's been trained in this. But the majority of things uh, that we get from day to day, like the flu, uh, the cold, even measles, even shingles, which I myself um, treated on myself, I never went within 100 yards of the hospital when I got shingles. And I got over it within mm -hmm. three weeks. And huh. now, obviously, I can't, I can't recommend that anybody else do that. You have to make your own choices about your medical treatment. Uh, but for me, that was the right choice for me to make. And um, but I, I understand that uh, for most people, it's it's scary uh, if you have, you know, even if you have like a really strong flu, it's a scary situation. Um, you really want help. You want somebody who seems like they know what they're doing. And so they're going to take their word for it and they're going to take the authorities word for it. And right now, the authorities are the medical establishment. Um, mm -hmm. so it's just like, I, I can understand why people are getting on the vaccine train, why they think it's safe. Um, but I think it just, it, it merits a lot more discussion among reasonable people. Um, so. Yeah. And I agree. And, and the concerning thing about the head start thing and why I chose to share it today was. Um, I used to work for them as a parent advocate in the late nineties and they're very intertwined with organizations like Child Protective Services. And so, again, as you were saying, it's this whole fear-based situation where already these families are low income, they're already financially struggling, and they, their children, you know, they need child care or early um, you know, nutritional supplements, which that's a whole nother thing because the USDA funds mm. that for, for Head Start. But that, you know, it's this, if you want to have somebody educate your child, you have to do it. That there's no sort of discussion about, well, maybe it's against my religion and, you know, I don't want to do this. It, well, if you don't do it, then your child does not get those services. Right. I uh, I think this would be a good time. I, I should remember to give our disclaimer here that the views and opinions expressed in this uh, show are not intended to constitute medical advice. If you have questions, uh, we encourage you to do your own research and to consult your own healthcare practitioner before you make any medical decisions for you or your family. Um, we'd like to be very clear on that. Um, the choices that you make are up to you. It's a free will universe, and we are not your doctor. Um, so just to make that clear. Um, but I think, uh, I think we can, uh, everybody's been hearing so much about vaccines, uh, 
these these last few weeks. Let's move on to talking about our topic today, which is uh, ketosis and the ketogenic diet. Uh, there's a lot of interesting things uh, involved here in this topic, and um, I know that uh, maybe a lot of people haven't heard the term ketosis. Um, when I first encountered it, I hadn't. I, I had no idea what it was. Um, I had to dip my dip my toes into those waters and find out uh, what the details were, but Doug is going to give us a, uh, an introduction and the basics of um, ketosis and what the ketogenic diet is, and then we'll talk about some further details on that throughout the show. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Um, well, I mean, we've, we've mentioned the ketogenic diet uh, a number of times on the show before just as, um, um, you know, just kind of in a hot, offhand way as, as a, kind of a solution to a lot of the, the different things we've discussed but uh, we decided it was time to actually like dive into it a little bit more and give people more details on what it actually is. Um, when I was in nutrition school, um, my exposure to the ketogenic diet was basically negative. Um, they were, were talking about how um, it can be very harmful and it shouldn't be done uh, long term and it's a, a kind of a trendy weight loss plan and, and nothing more. Um, so I, I was kind of set up to kind of reject it right from the very beginning. Um, and it, it really took a lot of um, research and uh, people pointing out, um, you know, people, particularly on the SOT forum, um, you know, really bringing out the research and, and showing what it was all about for me to kind of uh, get past that, that hump that had been kind of artificially uh, implanted in my brain. Um, but just to go over what exactly the ketogenic diet is, um, so if you look at it, there's, there's basically two uh, main fuel sources for, uh, for our bodies. Um, there's carbohydrates, which essentially is sugar. Um, all carbohydrates eventually break down to sugar. Um, and then there's fat. Um, you can use protein. I mean, protein can be used as a, as a fuel source, but it is problematic to use it as a main fuel source. Uh, protein is more used for uh, structural purposes in the body and um, you know, making uh, different uh, components and uh, muscle, bone, all that kind of stuff and hormones. Um, so the ketogenic diet is a diet that switches uh, one from being primarily a sugar burner or a carbohydrate uh, burner um, to primarily a fat burner, um, subsisting mainly on fat as your main fuel source. Um, now, because uh, high blood sugar is, is generally toxic to the body, um, you know, your body uh, has uh, all kinds of ways of actually lowering uh, blood sugar because it can. Having high blood sugar is, is quite toxic. Um, your body will not switch over into fat burning mode until all the carbohydrate is actually dealt with. Um, so getting your body into fat burning more mode requires you to eliminate all or at least most of the carbohydrate in your diet. Um, protein also needs to be kept to uh, moderate levels just because uh, protein um, actually does have an effect on insulin. Um, eating protein will raise your insulin levels, which does affect blood sugar. So by eating too much protein, you can actually keep yourself out of this fat-burning mode. Um, the, uh, it's referred to as ketogenic because um, when you're in fat-burning mode, um, the liver converts uh, fats to what are called ketone bodies, um, which it uses for energy. Um, primarily, those ketone bodies are used by the brain, which were previously thought to rely um, solely on glucose, that they couldn't use anything else. But um, in actual fact, they can, they can use uh, ketones and they actually do a lot better on ketones. Um, but, uh, you know, when people talk about ketosis or they talk about the key, uh, ketogenic diet, what distinguishes one 
um, as being in ketosis is having the presence of these ketones in the blood. Um, you know, when you're in uh, your sugar-burning mode, which I should say is basically the mode that the vast majority of the population on planet Earth are in all the time, um, you don't uh, find very many ketones. Um, you might find it, you know, uh, ketones are present when anybody fasts. So anybody who goes on a fast will probably um, have ketones uh, present in the blood, um, provided, of course, they're not doing something silly like the master cleanse and uh, drinking maple syrup the entire time and keeping themselves uh, in sugar-burning mode, um, basically um, getting rid of all the beneficial um, uh, effects of fasting. Um, and some people, if the blood sugar isn't too dysregulated, um, will enter into ketosis when they're sleeping. Um, just because they're fasting for a long period of time, um, which is, uh, yeah, so so you will um, uh, find that there are uh, ketones in the blood uh, when, when you first wake up, even if you're not uh, on a ketogenic diet. Um, yeah, so just going on here, you know, because fat is a more efficient fuel, um, and it is because uh, it supplies nine calories per gram, whereas uh, carbohydrates and protein only provide four um, uh, calories per gram. Um, it's a very energy-efficient diet. Um, fat is shuttled directly into the mitochondria, and the mitochondria are the little power plants in your cells that make energy. Um, and it doesn't require to be um, converted like uh, carbohydrates and, and proteins do before they enter into the mitochondria. So um, there's a whole uh, biological step there that doesn't need to uh, be undergone when you're, when you're burning fat. Um, Norga Gaudis, um, who wrote uh, Primal Body, Primal Mind, uses the analogy of, uh, of a fireplace and that, um, you know, using, um, uh, using fat as your main fuel source is like a log for the fire. You know, it's long burning, it's slow burning, it provides uh, heat over a long period of time versus using uh, kindling or paper or something like that, which is more akin to carbohydrates, which is a very quick burning fuel, very fast, but you kind of spike up, it goes hot for a bit, and then it goes cold, you know, goes out right away. So uh, it's kind of a good, uh, a good analogy. You know, what do you want to be um, using to kind of fuel your body? Do you want a long, sustained energy source, or would you rather have these quick up, uh, quick up and downs, um, you know, burning out really quickly? Um, so a ketogenic diet was first um, used as a way of controlling epilepsy, um, as they found that elevated levels of ketones in the blood reduced... Um, uh, greatly or stopped seizures. Um, it makes sense since ketone bodies um, are produced by the liver, they replace a lot of the glucose required for the brain. And um, being a more efficient fuel source, they actually do a lot better job, as I said before. Um, so the brain actually improves in ketosis. And, uh, you know, more recently, studies have found that um, things like ADHD, uh, behavioral issues, mood problems, depression, OCD, um, Alzheimer's all improve on a ketogenic diet. And it's really interesting because, uh, you know, in the news, um, I guess it was like six months ago or so, people were going uh, crazy about the fact that coconut oil um, was found to be this great, you know, um, uh, method of, of helping Alzheimer's. And people were having these uh, miraculous uh, um, effects by, by going um, on coconut oil and, and kind of um, reverse, well, maybe not reversing their Alzheimer's, but certainly um, making it, uh, you know, improving it significantly. Um, well, I think the, the reason behind that is that uh, Alzheimer's, uh, sorry, coconut oil 
actually uh, is very high in what are called MCTs, uh, medium-chain triglycerides. They're kind of medium-chain fats, and those readily convert to ketones. So I think what these people were basically doing is showing that the ketogenic diet can be helpful um, because they're doing um, a therapy that actually increases the amount of ketones. Um, uh, yeah, and ketogenic diet has also been uh, very promising for cancer uh, because tumor cells um, will, uh, you know, they only um, survive on sugar. Um, they don't actually have mitochondria, so they can't, um, they can't burn uh, fats. Uh, by eliminating all carbohydrate or most carbohydrate from the diet, you're actually um, starving those tumor cells. So there's been a number of studies that have come out recently. Um, there's nothing conclusive yet, but it actually looks very promising for uh, as a treatment for cancer. Um, just to mention another few, uh, MS, Parkinson's, diabetes all respond quite well to a uh, ketogenic diet. Um, what it's primarily used for by most people um, is uh, for weight loss. So any condition that is uh, kind of hinging on obe obesity um, benefits greatly from going on a, uh, a ketogenic diet. I mean, you know, anything where you have to control blood sugar, so diabetes, you know, you're, you're getting yourself off of the blood sugar roller coaster, all the ups and downs of burning this kindling instead of burning these, you know, long burning logs uh, or fat. Um, you know, you, you're, you're basically switching your energy source. So, um, and you're allowing yourself to burn your own stored body fat. Yeah. And they, um, I've, I've definitely myself, I've seen a lot of uh, testimonials online of people, uh, cancer patients who have, um, who have had great success uh, going on the ketogenic diet. I was having a, a hard time finding a specific story that I had, uh, had beat, uh, that I had seen. Uh, that was a YouTube video uh, a little while ago. Um, but it was an Irish woman who had um, ocular cancer and uh, she mm. went into ketosis and did the ketogenic diet and her tumor started to uh, shrink. And she said she had huh. been on it for about six months and that there was a visible decrease uh, in the size of the tumor. Um, and I think, I mean, it just, it makes common sense when you think about the fact that, I mean, it's, I, I believe it's medically agreed upon that cancer thrives on sugar, on glucose. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And that, it, you know, it makes common sense that if you were to cut that out, that the, the cancer cells would then starve and begin to die off. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, um, what we usually recommend um, is, the, uh, uh, is, is what's often referred to as the paleo-keto diet. So it kind of uh, combines the paleo diet um, but does a very low-carb version of that. And by doing that, you eliminate a lot of the um, problematic Neolithic foods, foods from the diet, so uh, like grains, legumes, dairy, sugar. Um, so, I mean, those are all very high-carb foods in and of themselves, so they really should be eliminated anyway. But if you go to uh, the more uh, mainstream, site, mainstream sites on uh, the ketogenic diet, they tend to um, allow for, for some things like that. Um, so we more recommend the, the paleo um, approach to it. Um, you know, and, and particularly the emphasis on animal fats. You know, um, animal fats have been wrongly demonized along with cholesterol for the last 70 years or so. But, um, you know, this really could be a, an entire radio show in and of itself, the whole uh, low-fat yeah. myth. Um, so I, I won't go into it too much here, but there have been a number of studies um, that have vindicated fat um, vindicated animal fat, vindicated cholesterol. These are not things you have to worry about. Um, fat is quite literally the best food source we have. 
um, best best source of uh, of calories, um, and there is absolutely no reason to avoid it. Um, in fact, we really encourage people to to uh, use animal fats in their diet. You know, a lot of people, when they are kind of going to a more low-carb approach to things and they are trying to raise fats, they'll say things like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm eating a lot more avocados and coconut oil and, and I, I'm eating, eating nut butters all the time. That's not the answer. Um, really, uh, the body thrives on animal fats. I mean, you're getting a lot of anti-nutrients, with, um, particularly with nuts. Um, you know, avocados are okay, but, I, I mean, you know, for some people anyway. I mean, not, you, can't, you can't speak universally about these sorts of things. But um, they don't, you don't want those things to be your main source of fat. Animal fats are right. the the most important point. Yeah, and you need that for the vi- what is it, vitamin A, D, E, F, and K yeah. Uh, yeah. that are contained in the animal fat. And then if you're on a high carbohydrate diet, those vitamins are actually you're you're processing them out of your body. Mm-hmm. Um, so and you know those are the they regulate your bone health, uh, skin health, uh, pretty much everything. And there's um, I, I can say an anecdotal story um, just from my own experience. I've had some really interesting results recently from uh, being in ketosis in that I have a few uh, points of decay on my teeth coming from years in the past of, you know, drinking soda and living a pretty much just a crap diet uh, up until about four years ago. Um, and this, those are now starting to grow back. My teeth are actually growing back, which uh, yeah. I know sounds kind of sounds kind of silly, but it actually works. Um and obviously, it doesn't happen right away. But if you're patient and you stick with it, it can happen. Yeah, the fat-soluble vitamins are so important for that. There's there's a whole movement um, revolving around the idea of regrowing um, your teeth and, and getting rid of your own cavities and stuff, and that you don't need these uh, these uh, these fillings and uh, and that sort of thing. Um, and you know, they they really uh, emphasize the fat-soluble vitamins. Uh, a good source of those is uh, is a, a natural cod liver oil supplement. They tend to be very high in these things. Grass-fed butter is also mm-hmm. a great source. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I know it can be hard for people to find, but just, um, uh, you know, take the time, call around. If you do, you know, if you, of course, some people live in more remote areas and it's a little bit harder to uh, to find a store that might carry this these kind of things. But I'm, I'm in a fairly remote area, and we have a few stores that carry, you know, Kerrygold butter or um, Organic Valley pasture butter. Um, things like that are available, and if you can find them, go for that instead of the, uh, you know, the Crystal Farms or the um, the kind of off-brand butter. That when That's one note that if you're going to be eating butter, it shouldn't be, like, white or very light-colored. Mm. Your butter should be, yeah. should be dark yellow, you know, like a yellow color. That means that the K2 is present. These other vitamins are present. Um, yeah. But for sure, like I think we had said this in another show, that your butter should at, at least be organic. If you can find organic butter, at least go for that. And if you can find grass-fed butter, that's ultimately the best kind. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, speak, speaking of that and finding stuff um, to, to use for this kind of a diet, if anybody wants to, uh, to get into it um, and, and look into it more, let's talk about transitioning. Like let's say – Let's say that somebody, because I, I know that a lot of our listeners are already kind of on the on the paleo track, um, and maybe some of them aren't. Um, and let's just say, like, you know, what's what's a good transition? Uh, what would you recommend that somebody start with yeah. if they were going to try to get into the ketogenic diet? Yeah, 
Well, I mean, transitioning can be a bit of a tricky issue um, because, you know, your body, you've kind of built up this inertia um, your entire life. Uh, you've been a sugar burner. Um, so transitioning, you know, it can be a, a, a bit tricky because um, switching into fat burning mode, it's not like you can just snap your fingers and it's done. Um, it really, you know, your body takes some time. Um, it needs to uh, get used to using fat as its, as its main fuel source. Um, it's probably not used to, um, you know, the enzyme profile that's necessary to be able to break down all those foods and things. So, so there's there there are uh, you know a few um, tricks to uh, to making the transition a little bit more easy. But you can expect to have a few things happen during transition, like you know cravings are pretty common. Um, flu-like symptoms, they they kind of dub it the low-carb flu. So some people will feel like they're they're um, sick, you know, in some way when really it's just that um, their body hasn't made this uh, this transition yet. Um, lack of energy is pretty common. Bad mood, um, but yeah, you know, when when you are making this uh, th- this transition, um, you know, if if you are all already paleo, you know, you're already you're already one step ahead of the game. But I think for anybody who isn't switching to a paleo diet is probably the best way to kind of um, ease the transition. So you get rid of a lot of those inflammatory foods, all the grains, particularly the wheat, the gluten, um, get rid of the dairy, um, get rid of sugar and all that stuff and start bringing animal fats um, to a higher level in your diet. Um, From there, you know, once you kind of uh, transition to that, then you can kind of switch more to a, a ketogenic diet. And I do recommend kind of jumping jumping into it um, to a certain extent. You don't want to um, kind of slowly bring up your, your fat and, and drop your, uh, your carbohydrates just because um, you're just going to prolong that uh, transition period and make, make it more difficult, um, kind of bouncing yeah. back and forth between the two different modes. Um, yeah. It's really important. Sorry, did you have something to add? Oh, I no, wanted no, to I add... Um, oh, yeah. I wanted to add for people who who like, you know, to read about it and get information, Dr. Gabby wrote an excellent article called The Ketogenic Diet and Overview. And so that might answer a lot of questions for people, too, and you can find that on the the SOT.net website. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to mention that article, actually. It's a great article, and it, it has a lot of, uh, of good scientific references. So it's, uh, you know, she backs up all all the points. Um, yeah, it's a great article. Yeah. Great. Um, I, so I can attest to that, that slow transition when I was first um, starting on this uh, a few years back and kind of going from my, you know, quote-unquote regular American diet um, where, you know, it's pizza, hamburgers, fries, that kind of thing, um, into uh, trying to get into the paleo thing uh, at first. And I, I didn't have a lot of information at that time. I mean, of course, it was out there, but I was just kind of like diving into it and trying it out. And I did that slow transition. And um, certainly I had some negative effects from it because uh, when you're – I was like, oh, I'm just going to eat more fat, but, oh, I'm going to have some beer too, which is not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, you don't want to mix high fat and sugar at the same time or high fat and high oh. carbs because that's that's the diet that's making everybody fat. You want to be really careful about that. Um, it's yeah. very important when you hear high fat diet to cut out sugar. Well, I would recommend cutting out, uh, all refined sugars completely without exception. Um, you know, and work from there and see if you can cut out 
most, if not all, glucose as well, um, talking about fruits and uh, things like that. I mean, I occasionally will have some blueberries, um, but now I'm, I'm being pretty strict about that as opposed to where I used to be at. Um, and then the recommendation, I believe, right now is uh, 40 or 50 grams or less of carbohydrates per day. Yeah, generally. Right? I mean, everybody's uh, everybody's kind of different on that front. Um, there's there's a, a term called carbohydrate tolerance that I believe was mm-hmm. uh, was um, uh, coined by uh, doctors Finney and Volek, um, who are great uh, low carb uh, researchers, actually. Um, and yeah, it's it's basically the idea that you know everybody has um, a certain level of carbohydrate that that they can tolerate. Um, you know, and still maintain uh, that fat-burning mode, that keto ketogenic mode. Um, mm-hmm. And everybody kind of has to experiment to kind of find out where that is for them. Some people uh, actually tolerate very little carbohydrate, if any at all. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, in, important to, to, to say here that, uh, you know, you shouldn't fear eliminating all carbohydrate from your diet. It's been shown clearly in clinical research as well as just uh, anecdotal stuff that, that you, you really can survive um, quite easily thrive even um, on a zero-carb diet. Um, I mean, essentially, yeah. there's no such thing as a zero-carb diet. I mean, meats still have some carbohydrate in them, but um, right. eliminating any obvious uh, carbohydrate foods, there's no such thing as an essential carbohydrate. The human body survives um, no problem at all on a zero-carb diet. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, I mean, even even if you – and you don't have to give up a lot of the things that you really like, too. I mean, I, I still have uh, raw cocoa powder um, mixing with, like, a butter yeah. tea. And that's mm-hmm. uh, one, to, one to two grams of carbohydrates per tablespoon, which is, is yeah. a decent amount of cocoa. Um, so you can still have your cocoa. Um, you can make it with, uh, you know, um, some sugar substitutes like stevia, uh, erythritol, or xylitol. Um, but we were talking before the show, Doug, there was something you wanted to mention about sugar alcohols and ketosis, which is like xylitol and erythritol. Um, that, I uh, forget what I said. What stuff. was it? Oh, we, were, we were talking about uh, how to, how, what things can kick you out of ketosis, and uh, I think alcohol can. And sh- uh, sugar alcohols, which are sugar substitutes, are technically an alcohol. Um, that they oh. that they might be able to kick you out of ketosis, but not entirely sure. Like you would probably have to no, have quite no. a bit. Or to it do it that, wasn't or... that it will kick you out of uh, ketosis. Um, we were talking about ah. the the ketonics uh, breathalyzer, um, which is a breath ah, a was... breath meter um, for measuring um, whether or not you're in ketosis or or how deeply in ketosis you are. And the the right. the breath test will be thrown off by alcohol um, if you've had alcohol right. within the last 24 to 48 hours. And uh, I wasn't sure if sugar alcohols would do that as well. Um, if taking sugar oh. alcohols would, would throw the test off. But no, I don't. I don't Just think. I think you would have to eat a heck of a lot of xylitol to actually be able to kick yourself out of ketosis. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, you, you do want to take these things in moderation. Obviously, I mean, there are some, uh, yeah. um, you know, gastrointestinal symptoms you can have from having too much of those sugar alcohols. So you do want to use them, uh, you know, sparingly. But um, right. but I you know if, if you do tolerate them I I don't think there's uh, there's there's too much negative to be said about them. Uh, Chris Kresser did a, a, an article on it actually about sugar alcohols and he came away with a fairly positive view of them just having uh, researched the literature and stuff. So. Hmm. Cool. Well, that, well that I'd like to make a nice. suggestion oh, yeah. for people who who may be having the sugar cravings, like if they're transitioning. And since we're yeah. kind of talking about that, um, 
one thing that I found personally that really helped when um, I was getting off of sugar and, you know, mainly fruits more than anything, um, is coconut oil. So you're having a sugar craving, you want to eat something sweet, take a tablespoon of coconut oil and um, it really helps suppress those cravings. And it also, uh, coconut oil also helps kill candida. So usually when when the sugar cravings are coming up, it's candida in the in the body, you know, calling for those sugars. So I just wanted to add that if you can tolerate coconut oil, because some people cannot, um, I personally found that just a nice big tablespoon of coconut oil, you know, will help kind of subside yeah. those cravings. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean it's not necessarily candida; it certainly could be. But, um, Mm -hmm. I mean, really, when you're having a sugar craving, your body is craving uh, energy. That's really what it wants. Um, And, you know, because we've, you know, been in this sugar-burning mode our entire lives, um, you know, that's, you know, it it relates um, energy to sugar. So you're having these sugar cravings because your body hasn't quite, you know, switched into this fat-burning mode. And it's like, you know, hey, where's all my energy? What's going on? I'm starving here. Um, so yeah, yeah, coconut oil is a good idea because it's got those uh, medium chain triglycerides in it, which can be used for energy right away. Um, so yeah, right. co- coconut oil is a great way to kind of uh, um, get rid of those sugar cravings for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, I find too uh, for myself, and especially during the transition period, it helped to make a, a buttered drink. Like uh, you know, I'm sure some people have heard the term bulletproof coffee or bulletproof tea or buttered tea, um, and we look at like the uh, you know, the old world back in the day, the um, the um, in Eastern uh, Asia, um, people drinking yak butter tea. Um, I mean, it's 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 historical throughout like the history of our human diet that fat has played a large role, um, and pretty much everything that's ancillary from fat has been used as a vehicle for getting fat into the body. Um, yeah. So, I mean, for myself too, when um, like I like to make a black tea. Uh, put in uh, butter, like, uh, you know, say if I'm making, like, a, a, the the amount equivalent to a coffee pot, I'll put in a quarter pound of um, grass-fed butter and then, like, a quarter cup or a half a cup of uh, coconut oil and then bl- get it melted and blend it up, and it's great. It's delicious. And then you can add cocoa powder, um, cinnamon, yeah. a little bit of stevia, some vanilla, and really make a nice drink for yourself, and that's a, a way to get that fat into the body. But I was going to yeah. say, let's... Um, since you brought up the uh, the breath tester um, and we're talking about transitioning into ketosis, let's talk about testing because people might be like, well, how can I check, you know, if I want to yeah. do ketosis, but I don't have a way to find out if I'm there. I, there are uh, three main types of, of testing. You can test a urinalysis or a, a breath analysis or a blood analysis. And um, can you just talk about which one, the, which which of those are more effective and what people might be able to do? Yeah, sure. Um, so the, the thing that people most commonly do is the urine test strips, um, partly because they're inexpensive and they're pretty easy to get. You can get them in any, uh, any drugstore at all. Um, I know here in Canada, you have to go to the prescriptions counter to get them, but you don't actually need a prescription for them. Um, and, but they tend not to be very reliable. Um, the simple fact is that if you are urinating out ketones, your body is not using them. So while it might be helpful at the beginning to see if your body is producing ketones, um, 
generally, if, if, you, if you are kind of uh, registering on these test strips, it's an indication that you, your body isn't really using the ketones. Um, so any, somebody who is in full-blown ketosis and they have been like fully established in that for a while will probably actually not test very high on those test strips. Um, they'll, they'll show just kind of minimal amounts. And, you know, some people will be like, oh, what's going on? I've been on ketosis, you know, trying for ketosis for so long and I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, showing anything on these test strips. Well, that's why, because uh, you, you aren't really, um, uh, you know, you, you probably are in full-blown ketosis and you're fine. Um, there's a couple of other tests, like you mentioned, Jonathan. There's the uh, the, uh, the breathalyzer test. There's a, I think there's only one out there right now. It's called Ketonics, um, which is K-E-T-O-N-I-X. Uh, um, and it's basically just a breath test. You plug in the, the machine, you let it warm up, and then you, you blow in it, and um, it'll blink different colored lights uh, indicating uh, how deeply in ketosis you are. Um, that one, I, I quite like that test, but, um, you know, when I was talking about it with Gabby uh, a couple of days ago, um, she expressed a little bit of doubt about how accurate it was. Um, now, I have found a couple of uh, blog posts and stuff where people have talked about comparing it to the blood test and finding it to be uh, um, pretty consistent uh, across the two tests, uh-huh. but um, but uh, it, it might not be. There, there are definitely things that can throw it off. You're not just supposed to have eaten um, within an hour of doing it. Um, like I said before, alcohol will throw it off. Um, if there's a possibility that sugar alcohols will throw it off. So um, it, it's not a bad way to do it, but uh, but it, it, I'd say it's maybe not fully confirmed how good it is yet. Um, probably the best way to do it is to measure your blood ketones. And you can buy a blood yeah. ketone meter. You can get them online. Um, some drugstores carry them. Uh, the only disadvantage to that is that te- the test strips for those are quite expensive. Um, you end up uh, paying, you know, a dollar or two per test strip, which, you know, if you're testing, particularly in the beginning, if you're testing, you know, a couple of times a day, that, that can definitely add up in cost. Um, but right. that definitely is the most accurate measure of how many, um, you know, what your count of ketones in your blood actually is. Well, that's, uh, what's, the, uh, what's the most accurate time of day to test? Is it the morning or the evening? I mean, I don't think you would want to test right after you eat. That might throw out the results as well, right? Um, yeah, I, d- I don't know what would be considered the ideal. Um, I don't, you know, I think most people are taking tests kind of over the course of the day to see how things mm-hmm. fluctuate. I know they say when you first wake up in the morning, your ketone levels will be generally fairly low. Um, same mm-hmm. thing when you uh, have just finished working out, um, just because mm-hmm. your body's been, you know, kind of gobbling them all up. Um, so your your uh, your ketone levels will generally be lower after that, um, but yeah, I think you know taking a reading um, consistently at particular times over the course of the day is probably the best way to to kind of figure out um, you know where you actually stand with it. But you know it should be sure. said that the the you know all these testings are are kind of peripheral. You don't necessarily need them. Usually, um, when you're doing the transition, you'll be able to tell once you're in ketosis because first of all, all your symptoms um, like low energy, bad mood. Um, the keto flu symptoms, um, all that kind of stuff will disappear. Um, a lot of people report having a sudden boost in energy that they feel like suddenly they feel like they've got all this extra energy and stuff. They almost get giddy with it. Um, you yeah. know, people talk about having uh, suddenly their brain is working a lot better. Um, they have quicker recall. 
um, you know, they, they're a better at kind of connecting dots and things like that, just kind of like a better functioning brain. So, um, yeah. you know, it, it, it's interesting to do all these tests and stuff like that and to figure out where you're at and kind of, you know, maybe get a, a more objective uh, viewpoint of, of where you are. But, um, but it's, it, it's not necessary. Um, like I say, right. a lot of people, you know, they'll be able, you'll be able to tell generally when you're, when you're in ketosis. Um, you know, some people yeah. maybe, you know, for the holidays or something like that, they go home and uh, to their parents' place and they have uh, maybe eat some stuff they probably shouldn't have. And, you know, it might be interesting to kind of test to see how long it takes you to kind of get back on track, um, you know, once you yeah. get back to your, your regular diet again. So, you know, there, there's a place for them, but I wouldn't say they're necessary. Yeah. But that that was me this year. I'm going to out myself over the holidays. I had some pie <laughs> and some cake. <laughs> do you have, I, do you have you a know, carb felt, overload? I, <laughs> yeah. I felt it. I felt inflamed for a few days after that, for sure. Um, yeah. and, uh, now I, have been personally, I've been using the, uh, the urinalysis strips and, um, you know, according to those, they show that I'm in ketosis, but now I'm curious, you know, because, um, now understanding that it just means that my, my body's producing ketones. And this is something I personally want to get more serious about. Um, I've been serious about the actual diet aspect of it recently, but it'd be very interesting to see the results of, especially the blood test. I'd be very curious to see what the results are there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So for other, pe- so I guess we could say for other people who might want to try this and kind of get serious about it, to start out first changing the diet, maybe testing your ketones once or twice a day, or even two or three mm-hmm. times a day for the first week or two, um, and mm-hmm. then kind of backing that off once you're able to maintain the diet and testing every few days, and then maybe even just once a week just to make sure where you're yeah. at. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a good way to go. But uh, yeah, the, the other thing is too, I mean, with the, uh, the urine test strips, um, y- you know, there's a lot of different things that could, could possibly throw it off. So I, I think, you know, you don't necessarily need to panic if, uh, if, if you do see that you're high um, on those ketone strips, um, think, Oh no, my body's not using the ketones. Well, you know, how are your energy levels? Because if your body is, right. is is not able to use these ketones, you'll feel it. Like you will definitely feel, yeah. um, you know, run down and, and lacking energy. Yeah. And yeah, that's well, a mean, good way to kind good. of read, yeah, how you're feeling is, um, yeah. personally, I've noticed the hunger issue. You know, if, if you're eating a, a breakfast with bacon and eggs and sausage, and usually that will sustain you till two or three, sometimes even four or five in the afternoon. And yeah. you don't necessarily get that cra- that crazy hunger that people who are, are addicted to carbs have. It's it's more like, yeah. oh, I haven't eaten in several hours and maybe it's time to make some dinner. So your body is kind of a good indicator how you're feeling, like you said, your energy level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for, yeah, that that's one thing that I definitely noticed uh, switching over is that, you know, when you're no longer relying on these blood sugar ups and downs, uh, you're not needing to eat every couple of hours or else you crash. Um, it, it's just kind of a, a, an amazing sort of freedom where, um, you know, you just have this energy there. And, and, yeah, you know, if you have to skip a meal, it's really not that big a deal. It's uh, it, it's mm-hmm. kind of like you know you, you might feel hungry but uh, but you're kind of like ah oh, it's it's no big deal I can I can last you know I've I've gone like days without eating anything um, and it you you know it it really isn't that detrimental 
um, as opposed to being a sugar burner and you don't eat after, you know, after a couple of hours, you're in this really cranky mood and, and kind of going crazy and you, you need to get that blood sugar back up again. Yeah, and even supplementing, like Jonathan said, with the, the fat teas and even uh, bone broth, the bone broth. So if you mm-hmm. don't have time to, to make a full meal, you just have some bone broth in the fridge and just a cup of it can really satisfy you for several hours. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the, the, I, I think yeah. the fatty drinks uh, or or um, the fat bombs, which we're going to talk about later, um, are really, uh, really helpful on this diet. Um, one thing that I think people run into, um, a, a, pr- a problem that they run into a lot, is is just not doing enough fat. Um, you know, it really, uh, you know, it, it, it's the programming for um, from the low-fat myth has really, uh, you know, embedded itself in our consciousness, and it really, it's it's tough to get over that. So, you know, people are, are adding fat to their meals and stuff like that, but it's it, it just, it isn't um, enough generally. So adding something like a fatty drink, and like I'm, I'm talking and sipping on like a butter hot cocoa right now, um, is you know it, it just it really helps to keep those um, those calories up um, to give you energy uh, throughout the day. Yeah, yeah. Same thing here. I've, I've definitely noticed um, that uh, it's it's almost almost kind of shocking the amount of fat that I can eat and not feel weird about it. Like um, yeah. say you know having like a, a steak that's like a quarter pound or a third of a pound um, like you would get at a restaurant and then having a quarter pound of butter on top of the steak, you know, where you're, you're essentially eating a, a pad of butter with every bite of meat. Um, and, but that's, you know, uh, that's what I'm burning now. And uh, regarding the energy levels, I do, I feel great. Um, I've been doing uh, a little bit more, of workouts lately, which is increasing my metabolism and my hunger levels. Um, but when I'm not doing that, when I'm doing the normal day to day and even staying active and say going out fishing or, you know, going hiking and those kind of things, I'm still, I feel great. And I eat pretty much uh, breakfast and dinner and I don't even think about snacks or anything else like that throughout the day. Um, where I remember very clearly being in the sugar burning state and yeah, you go two hours, three hours and you get this pit in your stomach and you got to pull over and grab something right away. It's, you know, hence the success of the fast food industry. They really capitalized on that because it's all yeah. right there. And the snacks industry, all the different snacks out yeah. there and stuff. It's, it's really interesting, yeah. too. Another thing that I noticed um, is that, uh, you know, I came out of the uh, the cooking industry. So I was, I was a chef for uh, a number of years. And, you know, I got right into the whole, like, foodie type thing. And, uh, um, you know, I, I refer yeah. to it now as food fetishism where, you know, people will sit there and actually watch cooking shows, like, you know, for hours at a time. And it, this whole food fetishism thing, I think, really comes from all these kind of, um, you know, blood sugar ups and downs. Um, one thing I found is that those things really don't aren't that interesting to me anymore. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't um, you know, fetishize food in the same way. I think it's, it's the same kind of thing you see with... Um, People who are, uh, you know, really into kind of recreational drugs and things like that tend to fetishize the drug a lot. You can see this in stuff like, um, you know, any kind of uh, marijuana-associated uh, magazines and things like that. They really kind of, you know, they fetishize the drug and like and and, and have all kinds of uh, of uh, things around uh, the drug and the drug use and glamorizing it and that sort of thing. And you see the same kind of thing in food. You know, really kind of pushing this uh, this food as entertainment. 
type idea. You know, food isn't yeah. just to fuel you. It's it's a it's a pastime. It's you know it's a it's something to uh, um, you know to to entertain you. Um, and that yeah. that kind of thing just kind of completely dropped off as soon as I I, I started doing um, the ketogenic diet because it suddenly like you know food is fuel. And yeah, it tastes good. It's great, and you don't want to try out new recipes and things like that. And it's a, it's it's fun in that way, but. But the kind of obsessive nature to it really kind of seemed to just, just kind of die off. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I and all the, the definitely all the time that yeah. is spent preparing these, yeah. you know, carb carb based foods. Like now, being on the ketogenic diet, it's like fifteen twenty minutes preparation time. So you're not spending hours cooking rice or beans or all these mm-hmm. things. You you just make your your meat and and there you go. Yeah, yeah. It's almost it's almost kind of unfortunate too because I I I was the same way and I think kind of still am. I I love cooking shows. I love recipes. I love the huh. science of food. I love getting into it. Um, but at the same time, uh, I I can't eat any of the stuff I'm looking at. <laughs> you know, <laughs> where like I'll watch, you know, if I'm watching like Iron Chef or whatever, one of these guys like Barbecue Masters from Texas. Like I, I get a kick out of the way that they put these things together, but I'm like, man, I can't eat what you're making because it's just full of sugar or, you know, there's yeah. a giant piled onto a giant bun. So it's yeah. been fun to try to find alternatives to that. Um, but even then, you know, there's really only so far uh, that you can go with some of the alternatives. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, even modern kind of uh, social cooking sites like yumly.com uh, and things like that, you go on there and you look and there's very few um well i would say almost no ketogenic recipes um but also even very few paleo recipes everything has got some kind of sugar uh or some kind of massive amount of carbs whether it's uh, pasta rice grains you know baked goods um sauces that have sugar and uh, all those things so yeah it's it's unfortunate because i feel like it's a it's a part of something i like that i'm that i've kind of missed out on so um, that's why I like doing the recipes on our show because it, it brings it yeah. back to that, like still have fun cooking this stuff. Um, but you know, keeping it within the keto slash paleo kind of range. Yeah. Well, it's a challenge, right? Like it's kind of like, well, it is, yeah. you've, you've, you've added, you've added kind of, um, a challenge, challenge to yourself there. But, um, I, I think it's, you know, that that's something that might actually change over time with you, Jonathan. Like I, I, I think that, um, you know, once once you're established more on on the diet, um, you know, I don't miss these things anymore. You know, somebody's sitting there yeah. eating chocolate cake across from me. I'm not sitting there salivating and going, oh, I wish, I wish, I wish. I'm actually kind of, right. I, I, I'm rather indifferent to it. You know, and I think yeah. I think that's a sign that your body has kind of switched over and is is very used to uh, fueling itself on on fat, and it's kind of like it's. It's like, you know, because food isn't isn't entertainment anymore, it's just kind of like, you know, yeah. it checks in with itself. Do I need food right now? No, I'm fine. Okay, I'm not craving anything. It's as simple right. as that. Yeah, no, I hear you there. That's uh, mm-hmm. I, I can definitely feel that those cravings are, are waning for sure as I get into, mm-hmm. uh, into ketosis. Um, I mean, I think I'm about a month and a half in, give or take. I haven't done exact testing. Um, I've been mm-hmm. in and out of ketosis for the last year or so. Um, and mm-hmm. I did kind of, you know, I, I did what you don't want to do, which was basically going, going in, then backsliding, going out and then going back in, which is not good mm-hmm. for your body. Um, so kind of, that's why I'm trying to get a little bit more serious about it now. And it's, it's really interesting to learn a lot of these things. Um, mm-hmm. and I do think it's a process, to- Jonathan, 
Yeah. You know, totally. it's um, it is a it's I mean, it, yeah, and just easing sorry, into it and and feeling um, again like we talked when we talked about the nourishing traditions book, like having support a support system like the forum or like uh, mm-hmm. recipes that we share on this show or um, mm-hmm. just alternatives, whether it's the the um, the fat drinks or the the bone broths, like. Um, you know, one step at a time, and as Doug said, and I can test for myself and my husband, the amount of energy that you have and the clarity of your thought and the ability to make it through the day without crashing and being moody is is all a tremendous payoff. And once you kind it of totally find is. where that that balance is for you individually, then you kind of work with that and keep gathering information and learning and and reading about, you know, things that we, we try and share here on the show. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, um, I think, uh, and this was something that I, that I suffered from for a while, um, which is believing some of the myths about ketosis, um, you know, things like you can't do it for a very long time or you're going to hurt yourself, um, you know, or you're going to, you're going to acidify your blood. Um, let's talk about a few of those issues. Doug, I know you had some of those queued up. Do you want to just go over a few of the myths about ketosis and, and what is true and not true? Sure. Yeah. There's actually a lot of them. Um, so I won't, I won't, I'll try not to spend too much time on them and maybe skip a couple here, but, um, uh, like first off the whole idea that you can't stay on it long term. I mean, all you have to do is look at uh, traditional cultures that have been, uh, subsisting on these. Um, diets for extended periods of time. You know, the, the Inuit obviously are, are um, the main one you think of, but even like a number of uh, North American uh, uh, Indian tribes uh, were in, you know, in ketosis um, long term, and there was absolutely no detriment to their health. I can say myself, I've been on it for four years, and I, I'm not noticing any kind of uh, negative effects. Um, I think, you know, these, these myths tend to sprout up from people who maybe aren't quite doing it right or, um, you know, there's some kind of gap in what they're doing. And I think in a lot of cases, this is that they're not doing enough fat. Um, I think that that is one of the biggest stumbling blocks for these things. Um, so they, they, they tend to fall apart. They tend to, tend to start having uh, health issues and things like that. But rather than troubleshoot it, they just kind of turn around and say, oh, it doesn't work. You can't do this long term. It's only a short term thing. Um, th- this has been, you know, proven a number of times to not be the case. Um, Another one is that it's not um, appropriate for uh, a high-performance athletes um, or even athletes at all. You know, there's this myth around that you uh, need to have um, carbohydrate to um, fuel, uh, to, to uh, boost up the glycogen in your muscles so your muscles can use glycogen and burn sugar. But uh, when you uh, switch to a, a fat-burning um, mode of existence, you don't need to rely on glycogen. Glycogen becomes sort of an emergency source. Um, a good uh, example of this, I was just reading about this guy recently, this ultra marathon runner, uh, his name is Timothy Olson, um, and he he um, was doing uh, these kind of ultra marathons and, uh, and marathons and things um, on, a, tr- on a, a normal kind of sugar burning diet, and he was finding that he would be getting things like stomach cramps, uh, he'd have to be uh, ducking out of the race frequently to go to the bathroom. Um, so he was trying to kind of troubleshoot and figure out why these things were sort of happening to him. And, um, so he ended up switching himself to a ketogenic diet. And, um, so in 2012, he won, um, an ultra marathon, 
I believe it was a run from L.A. to Las Vegas or something along those lines. It was all through, like, these back trails and things like that. And uh, he came in first place and uh, set the, the course record by uh, 21 minutes. So, um, yeah, his total time was 14 hours, 46 minutes, 44 seconds. And, um, yeah, 20 minutes faster than anyone had previously done it. And he also won the next year, although he didn't set the record that time. Um, so I think that that kind of, you know, disproves that myth right there. I know uh, Vinny and Volek did a, a study on cyclists. And uh, what they were saying was that um, the, uh, you know, a lot of the studies that had found poor performance from uh, high-carb diet, or sorry, high-fat diets versus high-carb diets, they didn't allow for that transition period. So they kind of uh, would test people, like, you know, they'd put them on uh, a high-fat diet and then test them kind of uh, in that very week. Um, so, of course, their performance was down because they weren't converted over to a fat-burning mode yet. So when they allowed for that transition period, uh, the cyclists all actually improved uh, their numbers on the ketogenic diet versus their high-carb diet. Um, mm. And, you know, you think about um, the, uh, you know, the, the generally endurance athletes are doing things like those gels. I don't know if you've seen those things before, but they're basically all sugar. Um, and they're taking these these gels um, during their um, athletic performance in order to, to fuel themselves because, you know, they're, they're burning through their sugar so quickly that they need to keep on reboosting themselves with this, uh, with this uh, sugar. Um, but uh, on a high-fat diet, you don't have to do that because as soon as you've uh, kind of depleted what you just digested, you've got ample fat stores to tap into. Um, so that's not to say that you wouldn't have maybe a fat drink or something like that with you uh, while you're doing your endurance uh, um, performance um, um, athletics. But, uh, you know, just the, the fact that you carry around and even skinny people have a massive amount of, of fat in storage um, that they're able to kind of burn on the fly. Um, so another common myth is about um, ketoacidosis. Um, so ketoacidosis is a term that um, basically it's, it's a, a rare form of complication from diabetes. Um, it happens when... Um, a uh, person is so insulin resistant that um, they're no longer to take any, able to take anything into their um, cells for energy, and um, their, bo their um, body starts producing ketones as kind of an emergency to try and get some sort of energy into the cells. So their insulin is high and their ketones are high, but their body isn't able to actually use any of that energy. Um, because the insulin is high, they're not able to take any fat into their cells. So, um, yeah, this is, this is a diabetes complication. Um, this actually has nothing to do with the ketogenic diet. Um, so I think uh, misinformed doctors uh, tend to be a source for this uh, this myth. Um, so sure. people are, are, are worried about um, going into ketoacidosis from doing the ketogenic diet. It really is, is highly, highly, highly unlikely that you will ever get into any state of ketoacidosis by doing the ketogenic diet. Um, yeah, the whole acid alkaline myth is another one. Um, you know, there's this uh, popular thing in holistic holistic health that, um, you know, if you eat too much meat, you're going to um, acidify your body. Um, the acid alkaline, uh, the whole premise is is, uh, is pretty dubious. Um, there's been a lot of debunking um, recently by health bloggers. Um, Chris Kresser is one who comes to mind. He's, he's one of my favorite health bloggers, and he did a great series on uh, the acid alkaline myth and really 
kind of just really dug into it and looked into um, uh, a lot of the studies on it and stuff, and it really doesn't seem to hold any water. Um, there was another sure. uh, study out that actually looked at, you know, the whole idea is that if you acidify uh, your body by eating an acidic diet like too much meat, um, that you will uh, get osteoporosis. But uh, there was a study uh, in 2012. Um, sorry, I'm just looking for it here. Uh, I can't find the reference right now. But um, it was basically uh, looking at, uh, you know, bone density um, in populations and, and looking at what they ate. And what they actually found was the more um, animal protein uh, these people were eating, the more dense their bones were, the more um, strong uh, their bones were. Uh, the more plant-based protein, the uh, the less, um, you know, the, the worse their bone density was. So, um, hmm. yeah, you know, the reason for that, it, it's tough to say because that was an observational study, so you can't really draw any conclusions from it. But, um, you know, the reasoning for that might just be that animal protein is a lot better. Um, you know, you're better able to, to utilize it. Uh, it's a complete protein. Um, so, and, you know, protein is needed for bone density. So, I mean, that right. that might be sure. the, the, the reasoning right there. Um, sure. Yeah, I mean, that, that there's a couple other myths I could go into here, but I think that, that kind of that kind of covers it. Yeah, that co- I think that covers the main ones. The main one I had heard about was ketoacidosis. Everybody I talked to, and I have a yeah. relative who's in the medical field as well and who was like, you're going to go into ketoacidosis, you know. And uh, I was always, at first I was like, oh, I don't want to do that, you know. But, uh, yeah. yeah, understanding that it's more related to diabetes than being on a ketogenic diet. Um, yeah. And that it has more to do with uh, insulin than actually with uh, ketones specifically. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let, let's talk a little bit about, like, uh, what, is a day, what is a day in the life of somebody on a ketogenic diet and, uh, and how might they troubleshoot uh, issues that they might be having with that? Yeah. Well, yeah, a day in the life, I mean, I can talk about what, what I generally do. Um, I'll wake up in the morning and I'll make myself some sort of fat drink. Um, now, whether that's like a bulletproof coffee or a butter tea, um, a butter hot cocoa, um, you know, it's really easy to do. You basically, you know, um, with the with the cocoa, I'll just kind of uh, boil some water, throw it in a blender with um, about 100 grams of butter, um, some cocoa butter, some lecithin, um, cocoa, and... Um, like some kind of sweetener, stevia, uh, xylitol, I'll use something like that, blend it up, and there you go. I'll put that in a thermos, and I take that with me to work. And I will sip on that, you know, between when I get up, and um, and you know, I usually will eat lunch like around 1.30 or so. Um, lunch usually consists of, um, you know, a piece of meat um, with some added fat to it, and that could be anything. You know, it's stuff I'm taking uh, for lunch, so taking to work with me. So, I, you know, there's some limitation to it, but it might be like, you know, a pork chop or, you know, a piece of steak or or something along those lines. I'll even maybe fry up some bacon and take that with me. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's not it's not this massive portion either. I mean, I think that, that's another misconception that people are sitting down to this, like, 16-ounce steak or something like that because, you know, people are yeah. used to having to eat a lot of food to satisfy them because right. they're, they're taking in these carbohydrates. But, when you're switching to um, having fat as your main source of fuel, your your portion size shrinks significantly. So, I, I mean, I'm usually having like four ounces of meat or something like that, which is not a significant amount. You know, I have had coworkers kind of look and say, that's all you're eating? You know, it's like I'm sitting there sitting down to like half a sausage or something like that, and they're like, that, that's your entire lunch? It's like, yeah, man, this is 
this is everything I need. Um, yeah. And then usually I'll have uh, have dinner um, later on. Like because these meals do tend to satisfy you so much, I usually eat, you know, um, seven thirty, eight o'clock, something along those lines. And that might be a more elaborate meal, but it still generally is meat and fat. Um, you know, I might have some vegetable with it. Um, I really like fermenting, so I'll have maybe some sauerkraut, uh, some kimchi, something like that, um, which, you know, is mm-hmm. beneficial for the, the, the gut bacteria as well. Um, mm-hmm. Or, you know, maybe a salad, uh, something along those lines. But, you know, not always. Sometimes it is just meat, uh, meat and fat. And, you know, another thing, another criticism that uh, that this diet gets is that it's boring. Um, but let me tell you, I mean, you know, every chef knows that fat equals flavor. And the reason for that is because your body needs it. Um, so, you yeah. know, having a fatty meal is extremely satisfying. Um, I rarely feel like I am missing out on anything. So, yeah, that's, um, that, that's pretty much my, my day. And you'll notice that I didn't mention any snacks or any kind of yeah. um, uh, supplemental uh, type things um, because you don't need them. You really, it really right. is such a satiating and um, satisfying diet that you don't need these kinds of little pick-me-ups or, or uh, little uh, entertainments throughout the day. Right. Well, it's certainly more economical. And I, I, I can go with you on the fattest flavor thing. I mean, um, even simplifying my diet uh, to the point where all I need to get kind of a flavor boost or to have something that's really uh, savory and really satisfying is some, some grilled uh, garlic, you know, like fry up garlic yeah. and a little bit of butter. And it's yeah. just great, you know. And, of yeah, course, herbs, your taste buds are so Yeah, completely. Like uh, yeah. parsley and cilantro and mix those things together. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, those those things can be great, especially, you know, if you're if you're doing something in a slow cooker or something like that, like a little bit of garlic, some thyme, rosemary, it's it's yeah, t- it tastes great. Mhm. Yeah. Well, great. Um I guess like uh, we're at a good time now to uh to go to Zoya's uh pet segment that she has uh sent us for today. Um okay. so let's uh, uh, listen to, so let's, let's listen to that and then we'll come back for um our recipe for today, which is going to be the fat bomb, the fat bomb custard. And we have the official original recipe for that, uh, which Laura had uh, posted on the forum uh, that she worked very hard to develop. Uh, so we'll give that out to you guys and you can try it yourselves. Um, but for now, here is uh, Zoya and the Pet Health Corner. <laughs> and welcome to the Natural Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Today we are going to talk again about emergency situations, since in the last show we couldn't cover them all due to technical difficulties. So what signs your pets could have that could indicate to you that you have to take your pet to the vet ASAP? First of all, it's important to remember that our furry members of the family can talk, at least not in the way we can always understand Therefore, it's vital to observe your pet on a daily basis and know their usual behavior in order to be able to see that something is wrong. It's also important in order to give accurate and as extensive as possible information to your veterinarian. Also, just like with humans, if they have allergies or any medical sensitivities or if you already gave them any medicine, it's also very important to mention it. Also, if you aren't sure Refrain from giving your pet so-called human medicine, like aspirin, for example. It may not be lethal for dogs, 
but cats like enzyme critical for metabolizing salicylic acid, the active ingredient of aspirin, properly. And the resulting symptoms can range from simply scary, like tremors or foaming, and up to loss of conscience and death. In future shows, I will make sure to give you a list of basic first aid things you should keep in your house, but for now remember that it's best to call your vet and receive initial help over the phone instead of doing something yourself. Okay, so what are the main signs you should pay attention to? Pale gums or gums that have a bluish or yellowish color. Pale gums may indicate anemia due to hemorrhaging, low body temperature, low blood pressure, poisoning and other reasons. Normal color of the gums should be pink or light pink. If the gums have already bluish color, it's a symptom of, a symptom of asphyxiation, meaning that there is less oxygen in the blood than it should be. It can be coupled with respiratory distress or a heart event, so don't hesitate to pick up the phone to your vet. Yellowish color of gums, as many of you probably guessed, has to do with liver. Usually it is present in animals with chronic liver diseases and only visible when already more than 50% of the liver was damaged. So if you see your pet being suddenly yellow all over, it could be a sign of ingesting toxins and poisons. Another sign is rapid or labored breathing. Just like with humans, hyperventilation in pets can be rather alarming, both to the owners and the animals. There could be several reasons like stress, fearful event, or maybe metabolic acidosis. In any case, there is a need to bring your pet to the vet for a thorough checkup of the lungs and heart. Another symptom that could be is a weak or rapid pulse. Now, since companion animals we usually share our homes, uh, homes with are smaller than us, their pulse will be faster than what is normal for us. This fact is important to keep in mind before thinking that something is wrong. And the younger the animals are, or the smaller the breed is, the faster the pulse. For example, for large breed dogs, normal pulse is 70-80 beats per minute, small breeds 80-120, and for puppies, it's normal to have a pulse of 180 or 200. Cats have a faster pulse of 110 up to 130. And kittens uh, can have a pulse of 230 uh, up to 260. And as it turns out, rats have the rapiest uh, pulse of 450-550. That's why it's important to get to know your animal and their vital signs during rest. Not in exact numbers, but at least to be able to notice what is normal for them and when it is suddenly different and doesn't change for some time. Another sign that you can notice is a change in body, body temperature. The same is with body temperature. Uh, our pets usually have higher body temperature than ours. That's why they are so comfy during winter evenings. So keep that also in mind before thinking that your pet is sick. For dogs, normal body temperature ranges between uh, 37.5 Celsius up to 39.5 Celsius. And for cats, uh, normal temperature is 38 uh, Celsius up to 39.5 Celsius. Notice that in our case, uh, it would be an indication of uh, being sick with inflammation, but both for dogs and cats it's normal. If it's higher than this, 
uh, then it may be an indication of inflammation. And if lower than this, it can be an indication of poisoning, although now more and more vets say that this particular indicator isn't, isn't that cut and dry. In any case, lower body temperature is much more dangerous than higher, so pay attention to it, especially in cases of blood loss or other emergency cases. In such cases, and after talking with a vet over the phone, you may need to warm up your pet's body with bottles filled with hot water, for example, already while on the way to the vet. Another symptom is excessive bleeding. Uh, there is a new generation of sophisticated vet poisons that have anti-clotting effects, meaning that after ingesting poison, uh, it interferes with production of blood clotting enzyme in the liver. So this poison is particularly insidious because it takes several days to kick in and for the effects to appear. And in many cases, it is already too late. That's why it's super important to pay attention to what your dog, and this is mainly dog's problem, is picking up from the ground. If you suspect that your pet has eaten something poisoned, call the vet and buy vitamin K1 just as a precaution. You may not need it, but you may help someone else in similar situation. There can be other reasons for excessive bleeding too, so keep that in mind. Another very important sign is bloating. Bloating can be a life-threatening symptom for dogs, especially large, large breeds like German Shepherd, Labrador Retriever, Irish Wolfhound, Boxer, Irish Setter, Collie, Bloodhound, Standard Poodle, and others. Bloating can happen due to two main reasons. The first is gastric dilatation, in which the stomach descends uh, with uh, gas and fluid. The second is vulvulus, in which this distended stomach rotates on its long axis. The spleen is attached to the wall of the stomach and therefore rotates with it. Gastric dilatation may or may not be complicated by vulvulus. If vulvulus occurs, the stomach may twist 180 degrees or less. Technically, it's called a torsion. An actual vulvulus is a twist of 180 degrees up to 360 degrees or more. If this happens, you must be quick, because realistically speaking, your dog has very little time to be saved. What complicates matters even more, that sometimes bloat isn't the first symptom. There may be other symptoms that were mentioned before, coupled with your dog becoming either very restless or very lethargic. It can happen after a meal or after a physical activity, so again, pay attention to your animal and what they are doing. Now, other signs that require your immediate attention include various neurological and other symptoms like apparent paralysis, loss of consciousness, seizures, staggering, stumbling, head tilting, uh, sudden blindness, severe hives or severe itching, um, prolonged vomiting or diarrhea, vomiting or diarrhea with blood, or just uh, repeated violent episodes of uh, vomiting and diarrhea. Many serious diseases begin with vomiting and diarrhea. Um, it can lead to severe dehydration and shock. So please take your pet to the vet. Another symptom is inability to urinate or defecate. 
Your pet may appear to be straining due to constipation, but it could be more serious. Frequent attempts, uh, attempts to urinate that don't produce a normal urine flow could indicate infection or obstruction, especially in male cats. This can lead to uremic poisoning and death. Uh, another symptom is inability to deliver puppies or kittens. If your pregnant dog or cat has gone more than three to four hours between delivering puppies or kittens, call your vet. Uh, well, there are many other signs and other things to pay attention to, but hopefully now you are in a better position to help your pet in case of emergency. Uh, so I think that this is it for this segment, and thank you for listening, and have a great day. All right. Thanks, Zoya, for that. That was great. So some awesome tips there on uh, how to deal with uh, emergencies and uh, symptoms with your pets. Um, I hope everybody was able to uh, to get that. And if uh, you missed anything, um, our show will be archived on Blog Talk Radio on the SOT Radio Network, so you can go back and listen to it again and take notes on, uh, on that or on anything else in this episode. Um, so to wrap up our show... Uh, quick note, uh, we, we covered a lot of information today. We got some really good information from Doug, who's been doing this for quite a while. And uh, we, uh, we actually still have more to go over, so we're, uh, we're considering doing a, a part two next week on, uh, on the ketogenic diet and on some more details. Um, we can cover uh, troubleshooting the diet. Uh, we can cover exercise and uh, even um, weightlifting, uh, endurance athletics, things like that. Uh, so we will... Uh, We'll talk about that over the course of this week, and we'll uh, we'll prepare a good show for you for next week. Um, but today, going with our topic, our recipe is going to be the fat bomb, and the fat bomb is a uh, is a custard, um, and it's a really good way and a, a really tasty way uh, to get the fat that you need on this type of diet, um, because sometimes it's hard. Like it's hard to just sit down and eat, you know, a stick of butter, um, especially cold butter. It's not really that appetizing for most people. Um, uh, and, you know, eating, like, lots of really fatty meat, then you're trying to eat more meat, you're getting too much protein. Um, so you really need to get in a lot of fat, and there is uh, there are certain ways to do that. Um, this, personally, I've found to be a really effective way. We make this quite a bit at home. Um, it's, easy to, it's easy to make. Well, I should revise that, I guess. It takes some practice. Uh, but once you get it down, then it's easy to make. And uh, I can usually make this within about an hour. Um, and then, of course, it takes a little bit of time to set uh, in the refrigerator. But um, if you have your, your notebooks out, uh, our ingredients are one liter or one quart of coconut milk. Canned coconut milk is fine. Um, all these or, uh, ingredients also preferably organic if you can find them. Um, 500 grams or one pound of butter or ghee, and ghee is clarified butter uh, without any of the milk solids in it. Uh, so if you're not familiar with that, that's spelled G-H-E-E, -E, and you can look that up and learn more about ghee. So 500 grams or one pound. Uh, one cup of coconut oil or lard, if you prefer to use lard. Uh, some people do have some reactions to coconut products, um, so you can use lard for that as well. Um, three tablespoons of plain gelatin. Uh, now, you can use Knox gelatin, which is really common, and it's in pretty much every store. Um, but if you don't want to use that, there are other brands available. 
Um, in the United States, there's another one called Great Lakes Gelatin uh, that you can order online. And um, basically, if you just do a search for that, look for uh, good uh, natural gelatin. But you want uh, three tablespoons of that and 11 teaspoons of xylitol or 14 teaspoons of erythritol. Um, and personally, in, in my own recipe, I use stevia, uh, which I really enjoy. And I use two tablespoons of that, which is about six teaspoons. So it's a little bit less. Um, and you can play with that. Use less or more depending on your taste. Uh, some people like it sweeter. Some people like it not so sweet. Um, I, I find a good balance is, uh, is two tablespoons of stevia. But our original recipe here calls for 11 teaspoons or 14 teaspoons of xylitol or erythritol. And then 24 egg yolks. Um, so you need to get two dozen eggs. Um, and vanilla. Um, there's no proportion on this because you can kind of uh, change the proportions on vanilla to your own taste as well. And then if you also desire to add uh, grated coconut, you can get some uh, one cup of grated unsweetened coconut flakes. Um, so our process here is a little bit involved. Um, but again, like I said, if you do some practice... You're, you're probably going to screw up a batch. I don't mean to be presumptive, but don't feel bad if it happens. Um, so we start by putting the coconut milk, the butter, the coconut oil, the gelatin, and the xylitol, or the sw whatever sweetener you're using, in the pot. Um, mix it around to start the gelatin dissolving with the fat. Um, put the pot on a heat diffuser on the stove, low to medium heat, and stir it occasionally as it warms up. And meanwhile, separate the eggs, separate the yolks from the whites. Um, you can either freeze or toss out the whites, whatever you like to do with them. Um, I use them for other things in the kitchen, uh, So, um, but some people don't use them at all. Some people have a reaction to egg whites. It really just depends on, on what your personal case is. Um, now, regarding the heat diffuser, um, <clears throat> that's basically just a double boiler. Um, you can set up your own. You can put a smaller pot inside a larger pot filled with water. Um, if, you, if people aren't familiar with this process, look up uh, heat diffuser or double boiler on Google and just kind of research that a little bit and see how to do it, and you can come up with your own method. Um, I got two pots uh, from the uh, from the second-hand store, and the, the outside pot is kind of an older run-down pot, and the inside one that I actually put my stuff in is a stainless pot that fits inside of that. So I fill the outside one with water, um, and then I push the inside one in there until the water spills out and kind of evens out. Do that in the sink, of course. Um, and then once you heat up the water, that gives you an even heat source around your inside pot so you're not burning the fat. Um, that's very important. You don't want to burn any of the things that are happening in this mixture. It's a very delicate process. So we've got all of the fat, the sweetener, the gelatin, uh, and the coconut milk kind of stirred together uh, in the pot on a low to medium heat. And we've got our egg yolks, 24 egg yolks, separated out from the two dozen eggs. Um, now you want to beat the egg yolks together, mix them up. Um, and when the mixture in the pot starts getting hot and steaming a little bit, you want to get ready to put in the egg yolks very carefully. This is a crucial step, uh, and you can use a meat thermometer uh, when you do this, just to be sure. Um, when it says the temperature is 70 degrees Celsius or 158 degrees Fahrenheit, then it's ready to mix in the egg yolks. So take the pot off of the stove and drizzle the egg yolks into the pot while whisking the, the fat mixture thoroughly between every time that you add in the eggs. So you kind of gradually pour in the egg yolks, 
whisk, make sure everything's mixed in, pour in a little bit more whisk, a little bit more. Um, but while you're doing this, uh, it takes a little bit of time. You just want to make sure that it's mixed well and that you go pretty slow while you're doing this. Um, now, once your egg yolks are mixed into the fat solution, put the pot back onto the stove, onto the heat. And at this point, you want to keep stirring it and stir it consistently until it starts to thicken. Um, you can tell when it's going to happen. You can see that it thickens up. So uh, you're probably going to go uh, anywhere from three to five minutes, um, give or take, the heat that you have on the stove. Uh, once it starts to thicken, give it another minute or so. Um, and then at this point, you want to take the pot off the stove and put it into a cold bath in the sink. So I usually start this process first by filling up my sink with cold water so I have my cold bath ready. So at this point, then you take it off the stove, put it into the cold bath, and keep stirring it until the water, the cold water, starts to get a little bit warm. And you can see your mixture starting to cool down and thicken even more. But you, the one major key of this is keep stirring it so that it stays emulsified. And uh, as we said, this is kind of a delicate process, so you just want to watch every step of this and uh, make sure that you have the timing and the temperatures correct. Um, now, when you're adding or when you've got the mixture in the cold bath in the sink and you're cooling it down while you're stirring it, you can add in your vanilla. Um, you can put anywhere from two tablespoons to four to six tablespoons depending on how much you want. Um, six tablespoons is quite a bit. It comes out really vanilla flavored, but I like to do about four. Um, I like the flavor of vanilla. It really adds a nice touch to it. And I also like to add a little bit of lemon extract or lemon juice at this point, just a bit, just to add that kind of extra tang on the top of it. <clears throat> and now, when you're done with that, uh, when it's cooled down, you've got your vanilla added. Another important step to this, if you don't want it to come out really, really super solid, I mean, it's still edible, it's still tasty, but if you want to get that really nice custard texture, take it out of the sink and get about a quarter cup uh, quarter cup to a half cup of uh, cold water ready on the side and take your hand mixer or an immersion blender or something like that um, and slowly pour in the cold water and blend or mix at a, at a pretty good speed the mixture in the pot so that you're mixing in this cold water and that's going to add air um, to the mixture and create a lot of bubbles and kind of fluff it up a little bit and then personally what i like to do after this process is actually take my blender um, a high speed blender and pour it into the blender and then there run it on high speed for about 20 to 30 seconds which really fluffs it up a lot um, and then i just put it into containers put the containers into the fridge um, give it you know, give or take uh, two hours to set, let the gelatin set while it's in the refrigerator, and then you're good to go. Um, sometimes it's nice to uh, to drink it right when it comes off, when it's a little bit more liquidy. It's really tasty that way. Um, but, you know, of course, once you refrigerate it, the gelatin is going to set, and you're going to have this custard um, that is super high in fat and uh, really tasty, and it's a really good supplement, a fatty supplement throughout the day. Um, so... <clears throat> excuse me depending on how you make this you can take it with you um you don't want it you don't want to reheat it you don't want to heat it up uh it's going to break the the emulsion and it's going to get super runny again so but if you have like small mason jars or small containers you can take a little bit with you to work um you know and then have it as something to 
to eat throughout the day to make sure that you're getting the proper amount of fat. This is also really helpful when you're transitioning into ketosis, but also for maintenance. And um, besides that, it just tastes awesome. So that's our uh, that's our recipe for today. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Doug and Erica for for being with us today for our uh, our stripped down uh, crew today. We're looking forward to having Gabby and Tiffany back with us um, next week. Uh, so we'll keep you all posted on that. And um, would you guys like to add anything else? Uh, just that the fat bomb is delicious. I agree with you. <laughs> yes, it is. I'd like to add, too, that once you make your initial batch and, and you feel confident, you can even add things like uh, the cacao powder, chocolate mm-hmm. powder to make a chocolate flavor. Oh, yeah. Or even over the holidays, we did one with pumpkin spice. So you have oh, like nice. a it's like a pumpkin custard, and as yeah. you said, the coconut is an option, and also um, lemon or lime, you know, some sort of it almost tastes like a key lime pie when you when you add like nice fresh limes. Mm. Sure. Well, that's great. So just get, yeah. get culinary yeah. fun. Sorry. Oh, culinary fun. Just experiment with it, flavors. Nah. It is. Yeah, don't get too nervous about this. It's not like it's going to explode in your face. You know, try it out. And if, it, <laughs> if, the, texture comes, if the texture comes out weird, then uh, hang on to it and eat it the way it is and then try it again, you know, and just experiment until you get something that you like. Um, some people like it more dense. Uh, you can skip the whipping part at the end, and it basically is just like kind of a hard mass, but it – it's it's a little bit more like kind of like an ice cream type thing. Um, I like it really fluffy, so that's why I like to whip it so much. Um, but yeah, it's really it's a great recipe, and uh, we'd like to thank uh, Laura Laura Nightyachik for coming up with that one. She spent a lot of time uh, perfecting that and going through all the different proportions and uh, really playing with it to come to that recipe. So it's been it's been awesome. Um, all right, well that is our. Uh, our show for today. Uh, thank you very much for listening to the health and wellness show on the SOT radio network. And, uh, we will be back, uh, next week, uh, same time Monday at uh, 2 PM Eastern. And we really look forward to having you listen. Thanks again. Thanks. Bye-bye.